I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and this is where I share my stories. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time, an FBI agent about to face forced retirement rushes to wrap up a case that's left him baffled for years. Will he finally find the clues he needs to solve it at a traveling circus? This story may be uncomfortable for some listeners. While not described in great detail, it does contain mention of missing children and sexual abuse. There is also some violence. All right, let's get to work. Under the Big Top The FBI finally caught up with the Heckle Brothers Circus in Kenosha. All across the Midwest, children were disappearing. These were the kinds of cases that ended in distant fields, dusty crawl spaces, or murky river bottoms, not with groups of stolen children running back to their parents' waiting arms in heartwarming moments made for the evening news. These were the kinds of cases that angered Special Agent Robert Crawford the most. Crawford was the old man around the Milwaukee field office. A year shy of 55, a year shy of forced retirement. Almost 25 years as a special agent made him appear much older than he actually was, a face lined with cavernous wrinkles, heavy eyelids that seemed locked in a perpetual scowl, and wiry tufts of hair on the side of his head he manicured with care in a losing battle to keep a look of youth. Beneath his skin, however, was muscle. Crawford was stout and wise, walking with a Clint Eastwood swagger and still throwing himself into cases with the vigor of a 25-year-old. He may have lost a step or two over the years, but he had always been several steps ahead of other special agents and still led most of the pack. Crawford sat with his partner, Scott Desner, in a Denny's outside Milwaukee waiting for his moons over Miami breakfast and for special agents Joe Schwanbeck and Bill Heller to finally show up. He didn't like Schwanbeck and Heller, and not just because they made a habit of being late. Schwanbeck and Heller got under Crawford's skin and stayed there like a flesh-eating disease. Their banter seemed rehearsed, as though they spent all their drive time refining a myriad ways to annoy Crawford, ogling women instead of working, copying his leads and claiming them as their own, and, especially, calling him Pops. They were young, too smart for their own good, and incredibly crude, but they also closed cases like Crawford did when he was younger. Consulting with Schwanbeck and Heller reminded him there was always young blood right behind him. They were the fuel that kept him going, and he'd be damned if he'd let those two take the spotlight from him. Now, more than ever, he needed their push. Crawford had been following a list of missing children as far east as Cincinnati, as far west as North Platte, as far south as Memphis, and as far north as Duluth. The same time every year, a kid went missing. Crawford saw each abduction after the first outside Milwaukee in 1999 as his fault for not solving the case the previous year. This year was even worse. Next year, he'd be forced into retirement, and the thought of having to leave a job he loved with an unsolved case involving missing children never left his mind. Kids were disappearing, and he had to stop it. But how? There were abductions, but no bodies. A collector, Crawford speculated, someone who takes kids, does horrible things to them, and leaves what's left in a designated area. The profile was usually dead on, a middle-aged male, Caucasian, 
with a propensity for impulsive and violent behavior. Abused as a child, holds no job or changes jobs frequently. Probably drives an older four-door or a van. When they moved around as much as this case, other giveaways, such as the perpetrator knowing the family, knowing the area, knowing where to hide a dead six-year-old, were no good. There were no leads to follow. It was all so random. Schwanbeck and Heller came in just as Crawford started into the second half of his sandwich. They looked like kids to him. He could see them at the mall dressed in baggy jeans and oversized athletic jerseys, not dark suits. Schwanbeck's spiky blonde hair grated on Crawford's nerves. The way it was gelled so hard, it looked like you could cut yourself on the tips. Heller reminded Crawford of a skinny kid with poor posture who owed his life to his cool friend. Without Schwanbeck, the little yes-man would be nothing. They walked to the booth, and Heller sat beside Desner, leaving Schwanbeck a prime spot beside Crawford. He slid onto the bench seat like a snake. What's up, Pops? He chewed bubblegum and was already eyeing waitresses. We do have codes of conduct, Crawford said. He stopped, though, realizing it would only give Schwanbeck fuel. Schwanbeck popped his gum and then grabbed a napkin and spit it out. He balled it all up and set it on the table, just close enough to Crawford's plate to bother him. Crawford slid his breakfast back a few inches, and Schwanbeck and Heller giggled like little kids. When they stopped, Schwanbeck said, Heard you needed our help. Assistance. Same thing, only one doesn't sound as desperate as the other, Schwanbeck said, eliciting another giggle from Heller. Crawford was about to lecture the two about behavior unfitting of special agents when the waitress came to the table and asked Schwanbeck and Heller if they wanted anything. She was maybe 19, maybe a single mother, or maybe a college student, Crawford speculated. Definitely not somebody who should be subjected to sideways glances and crude jokes. When Schwanbeck slid his tongue across his teeth, before he could speak, Crawford kicked him in the shin with his heel beneath the table, warning him to be courteous and quiet for once. Schwanbeck shifted gears, pouring on a heavy dose of forced politeness. Uh, yes, ma'am. If it wouldn't be too much of a bother, he said, flashing puppy dog eyes. I'd like French toast in your finest orange juice, please. Large. He pointed to Heller. And my colleague here, Mr. Heller, would like the same. Then he pointed to Crawford. And my dear grandfather would like a refill on his coffee if that's not asking too much. He's old and the caffeine keeps his heart beating. Heller shook, trying to hold back his laughter. Schwanbeck smiled and winked at the waitress. The way he interacted with people bothered Crawford. Sometimes when he looked off into the distance, deep in thought, Schwanbeck had the same look calculating killers had. He watched people move as though he were plotting how to separate them from the herd and take them away, never to be seen again. Crawford wondered if the reason Schwanbeck was so adept at tracking down the most twisted minds was because, just like them, his mind functioned in a similar manner. Had he not been on the right side of the law... Joe Schwanbeck may have been the very kind of person Crawford, Desner, and Heller were paid to stop. Several minutes later, the waitress brought two glasses of orange juice to the table and then refilled Crawford's and Desner's coffees. When she left, Schwanbeck said, So what's in the way on this one, Pops? Why don't you and Harpo here have anything? The kids are simply disappearing, Crawford said, taken from their rooms at night. No sign of struggle, no sightings, no remains. Six kids in the last six years, right? The most recent last week in Champagne? It was the most serious look Crawford had ever seen on Schwanbeck's face. For once, he actually looked 28, not like a 12-year-old bully hijacking an adult's body. Yes, Crawford said. So no relation, just random. So it appears. The 12-year-old Schwanbeck returned. 
Things are never as they appear, Pops. Especially in this line of work. You know that. Then he went back to being a special agent. So, what are some of your theories? We're really at a loss, Crawford said. We've checked old cases, combed local records, and come up with some really off-the-wall kind of stuff, but nothing solid. The waitress returned with two plates of French toast. Thanks, ma'am, Schwanbeck said. He watched her walk off. Man, they tie that apron on and it just shows off all the curves. Mm-mm. Stop, Crawford said. Sorry, Pops. Schwanbeck was already shoveling food into his mouth when he said, All right, let me uh, digest everything you just told me. It won't take long. He went to work on his French toast, repeatedly drenching it in syrup and butter, smacking his lips, and chewing with his mouth wide open. Crawford would have thought he was trying to bother him, but he'd seen Schwanbeck eat before, and this was no act. He was simply a crude, ill-mannered, piss-poor excuse for a human being as far as Crawford was concerned. But he was good at what he did. When Schwanbeck was finally through with his breakfast, having finished the puddle of syrup on his plate first with a spoon and then with two fingers, he looked at Crawford and said, Does he ever talk? He jerked his head toward Desner. Yes, Desner said. Just not to assholes. Desner was to Crawford what Heller was to Schwanbeck, a silent partner the dominant special agent seemed to need in order to get the job done. Only Desner wasn't a punk. He wasn't as old as Crawford, but in his early 40s, the same wrinkles Crawford had were beginning to make an appearance on his face. Younger agents looked to him as an elder of sorts, while others speculated he liked teaming up with Crawford because at least he wasn't called Pops. Schwanbeck smiled a sticky little grin. Hey, hey, we have a code of ethics we must abide by, Agent Desner. Talk smack like that and Agent Crawford here might just tell on you. Crawford sighed and said, So what do you think? Schwanbeck, clearly uncomfortable, shifted on the bench. You know something? For once, I'm as clueless as you. Crawford played the game with Schwanbeck enough to know when he was acting dumb, but actually chomping at the bit to take what he learned from Crawford's leads to solve the case and take full credit. He also knew when Schwanbeck was just as lost as everyone else. This was one of those lost moments. When the waitress returned with the check, Schwanbeck slid it toward Crawford. The four agents stood up, and Crawford put a five on the table. That's old-fashioned, Schwanbeck said. Crawford looked at the bill. What? Tipping. At the register, to rub it in and cover up the fact he hadn't come up with anything better than Crawford, Schwanbeck said, My grandpa's paying to the cashier. There was a small poster behind the register advertising the Heckle Brothers Circus. Schwanbeck saw it and said, He's going to take us to the circus. Schwanbeck and Heller high-fived and cracked up. Good luck, Pops. They left, leaving Crawford and Desner at the register. After Crawford paid the bill, Desner said, What now? Something clicked. Crawford looked at the poster and said, You heard the boy. We're going to the circus. The big top housing the Heckle Brothers Circus sat like a garish, half-deflated jellyfish in a field on the outskirts of town. If one ignored the nearby bank and a few other signs of civilization, it was like stepping back to a time when the arrival of a big tent in your hometown triggered a summer of wonder. Gone were all those dreams of being a fireman, a policeman, or even a race car driver because you now planned to run away with the circus. Maybe you'd tame lions, walk on a high wire, or be shot out of a cannon. Or perhaps you'd defy gravity on the flying trapeze or make the audience roar with laughter as a clown. Special Agent Robert Crawford never had those dreams. For as long as he could remember, he wanted to be an agent. 
He was living a dream come true, even if it meant occasionally having to see things he didn't want to see and go places he didn't want to go. He knew what he did mattered, and he could always face himself in the mirror the next day. He couldn't if he were a greasy circus clown. Crawford pulled his Crown Victoria into a roped-off area where the grass had been crudely cut to form a makeshift parking lot. One good rain and it would become a bog, imprisoning cars like the La Brea Tar Pits did to animals. Crawford and Desner stepped from their vehicle. Desner stretched and inhaled deeply. Christ, what reeks! Elephants, Crawford said. Can't mistake that infernal smell. I'll say. Worse than cows. Indeed. Crawford and Desner rarely spoke. They functioned like an old couple, knowing what the other was thinking, sometimes even finishing each other's sentences before they were spoken. Crawford could bounce ideas off Desner, who served more as Crawford's conscience than a partner. Over the years, the two had wrapped up more cases than anyone from the Milwaukee field office, until Schwanbeck and Heller came along. Crawford tucked his notebook under his arm. Schwanbeck called it Crawford's Tiny Book of Secrets because he was always writing in the book, but never showed anybody what he was scribbling. They approached a small handful of onlookers near the big top. Everybody was casually dressed, jeans, shorts, t-shirts, and a few men without shirts. Crawford and Desner, wearing their dark suits, stood out like the bright tent in the middle of a green field on the outskirts of town. The big top and the grounds were surrounded by low fencing, the kind used for festivals and police barricades, only painted red and yellow. Hot dog stand colors as far as the eye could see, cutting a path through the green grass like gaudy varicose veins. To the right of the big top was a long red stage and a much smaller tent. The banners hanging above the stage indicated the Heckle Brothers Circus still believed in a good old-fashioned sideshow. A brave move in politically correct times, Crawford thought. Animals were on display between the tents, pacing in bare cages and looking defeated. A polar bear the color of nicotine stains panted in the heat as though each breath could be its last. A handful of roustabout laborers kept the curious crowds at bay. If anyone stepped too close to the barricades or roped-off areas, they'd hold out their hands and shout, Get back! You're not allowed beyond this point! with all the zeal of an elementary school hall monitor. They appeared to love their position of perceived power as they scowled at the crowd with disdain. Crawford could tell they really didn't like him and Desner, but that didn't stop the two from stepping near a roped-off area, ready to climb over and enter the sacred domain of the roustabouts and other circus people. A squat man who'd probably be homeless had he not excelled at shoveling shit and carrying things held out a pair of dirty hands and said, What the hell you two want? We're just here to look at the animals and dirty little circus freaks like everyone else, Crawford said. He was normally much more patient, but there was something about the little guy before him that rubbed him like a cat's tongue. Dirty Hand said, Yeah? Well, just like everyone else, you gotta stand back. Crawford produced his badge and said, I don't think we do. I'm Special Agent Crawford, and this is Special Agent Desner. We're with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Dirty Hans's face went blank. Who's in charge here, Crawford said. The Heckle brothers didn't exist. They were the brainchild of Simon Heckler, a tall and possibly thin man in his late fifties. He divided his duties as owner, promoter, and ringmaster, starting the circus in the 1970s, but claiming a history that went back to the turn of the century. A consummate showman, Heckler was always on, shucking his way into everyone with all the panache of a cut-rate used car salesman. So, how can I help you gentlemen, Heckler said to Crawford and Desner. The three men were the only people in Heckler's cramped RV. Do you have records of all your stops over the past six years? Why, of course, Heckler said. 
He stood up and crossed the RV in a few quick steps, unlocking a three-drawer filing cabinet near one of the windows. He flipped through a notebook, stopping on a page titled Dates. Then Heckler stepped back to the small table where Crawford and Desner were sitting, handing over a file folder containing all the requested information. Can I get you gentlemen something to eat or drink, Heckler said. No, thank you, Crawford said, while Desner shook his head no. They never took food or drink from people, even if they were ruled out as suspects. What was only a remote possibility when Crawford saw the poster advertising the circus in Denny's unfolded into something more as he compared the notes in Heckler's files and Crawford's tiny book of secrets. June 13, 1999. Kyle Olson, 8 years, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. June 13, 2000. Stephen Smith, 4 years, Cincinnati, Ohio. June 13, 2001. Emma Wainbridge, 8 years, North Platte, Nebraska. June 13, 2002. Sheila Summers, 6 years, Memphis, Tennessee. June 13, 2003. Anna Johnson, 7 years, Duluth, Minnesota. June 13, 2004. Cyrus Clem, 5 years, Champaign, Illinois. At each site of abduction, the Heckle Brothers Circus was either in or near town, according to Heckler's records. Heckler's elbows rested on the small table, his tiny head nestled in his large hands. He looked comical sitting in the chair, his knees rising up higher than the table's edge. He tapped a size 16 Kenneth Cole on the floor like he was keeping time with a rock band. Crawford and Desner were used to people tapping their feet when they were around. Even innocent people got nervous when the FBI came knocking. Crawford scribbled some quick notes in his book, looked up and said, Mr. Heckler, we're going to need a list of all the people the circus has employed since 1999. Back in the Crown Vic, Crawford ran all the names through the mobile data terminal. And just as expected, it came back with a list of people working for the circus with criminal records. Circus people, he said. Desner nodded his head in agreeance. We've got 13 people with priors ranging from public intoxication up to two with priors involving kids, Crawford said. I hate saying it, but I'm going to bring Schwanbeck and Heller in on this. He scrolled through the list on the MDT, and Desner pointed to Marty Clemens, a 31-year-old with an indecency with a child charge. That's what I was thinking too, Crawford said. I bet it's a clown, Schwanbeck said as the four agents approached the barricade later that morning. Clemens will be a clown. Just wait and see clown, I tell ya. Crawford normally wouldn't have entertained such a wild guess, but he wanted to see how Schwanbeck's mind worked on this one. What makes you say that, Junior? Come on, it's obvious, Pops. Too obvious, Crawford said. Clowns are very busy people, Agent Schwanbeck. They don't have time to run around the country killing kids. Schwanbeck wasn't about to give up. Gacy was a clown. Crawl space full of bodies. Name some other killer clowns and I'll listen to your theory, Crawford said. A clown may not even be on our list. Okay, Schwanbeck said. But you gotta admit, clowns are creepy. Everybody nodded their head in agreement. They reached the roped-off area at the side of the barricades and were greeted by another roustabout pulling security duty. Dirty Hands was nowhere to be seen. This time it was a kid, probably no more than 20, with dreams of flying through the air with the greatest of ease. Excuse me, sirs, he said politely. Performers only. Crawford produced his badge and said, I'm Special Agent Robert Crawford with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We're here to see Mr. Heckler. Oh. The kid looked nervous. He lifted the rope. Sure, come on in. I'll definitely cooperate any way I can, Heckler said. 
He scratched the back of his left hand, flaking the skin on his knuckles. He also tapped his feet, this time like he was keeping rhythm with the speed metal band. His Adam's apple rose and fell between swallows like the ring the bell game on the circus's tiny midway. What is it you need? We'd like to speak with Marty Clemens. Sure, of course. Heckler stood up and led them from his RV. They wandered the grounds looking for Clemens. Behind Heckler's back, Schwanbeck mimicked his awkward stride as Heller struggled not to laugh. Crawford glanced over his shoulder like a father in the front seat of a car looking at his unruly kids in the back. Heckler shared the fabricated history of the circus as they wandered the grounds, but nobody really cared. Clemens was nowhere to be found. Heckler walked them from the far side of the big top, and then back behind the deflated lions, tired tigers, and yellow polar bears, to the area where the roustabouts gathered. It was still a couple hours before the matinee, and they were already taking a break. They leaped to their feet and looked busy out of habit as their boss approached. Heckler walked up to a tall, pug-nosed man leaning on a crap-encrusted shovel who seemed to be in charge. Hey, Larry, have you seen Marty? Crawford flipped through his notebook, jotting down and filing every name and tidbit of possible information he heard. Nah, we've been looking for him, though. Nobody's seen him since morning. We're on it, Schwanbeck said. Crawford put his hand up, stopping Schwanbeck from rushing off. Hold on, let's keep looking around. Schwanbeck rocked back and forth like an obedient dog waiting for permission to fetch. Every single second we look around here is another second he has on us out there, Schwanbeck said. It's not that easy. It is that easy. Who's wrapped up more cases this past year? I'm out of here. Schwanbeck took off for his car, Heller hot on his heels like a little shadow. Yes. But who closes all the big cases? Crawford whispered under his breath. Desner nodded. Crawford asked Heckler, Can you show us Marty Clemens's personal space? Sure, Heckler said. He led them to a small camping tent in a clearing near some others. The window was zipped open, and a look through the mosquito screen revealed a tiny bedroll, some personal items, and a pair of pajama bottoms that looked like they'd fit a five-year-old boy from Champaign, Illinois. Crap, Crawford said. Maybe Schwanbeck was right. Maybe it really was that easy. If Crawford was nothing else, he was at least persistent. While Schwanbeck took a more direct route to solving cases, sometimes losing sight of what he was looking for because he was sure he was right, Crawford had an unobtrusive way of solving things. He allowed things to unfold. He believed the trick to being a special agent wasn't all about chasing clues, but often having the patience to allow things develop before your eyes, and then having the reflexes to react when the truth presented itself. Crawford also loved finding out what made people tick. He knew idle chit-chat loosened most people up before questioning, but Crawford actually liked finding out what people were like and all the little things that came with them. Hobbies, work, family, favorite sports teams. It not only gave him a window into the person he was speaking with, but it earned their trust and satisfied his own curiosities. It was a trait that served him well when Heckler introduced him to the next person on his list. So, how does one go about becoming a circus geek, Crawford said. Dean Silvius looked him up and down. Something tells me you don't really care about the chain of events that led me to a career of eating worms for money. Actually, I am interested. Fascinated, really. But you're right, that's not why I'm here. Crawford looked to Desner, who nodded his head. Mr. Silvius, Crawford said. It seems wherever the circus goes, kids end up missing. I didn't know that. Not all the time, just once a year. Does the 13th of June carry any importance to you? No. Why? Crawford flipped around in his book. You've probably surmised that we know you kidnapped a little girl when you were 25. I did, and I also served my time. 
Nobody is accusing you of anything, Mr. Silvius. So then why are you asking me about these kids? What's happened to them? We don't know, Crawford said. Sometimes when kids are taken, they're put to work doing things no adult should ever be forced to do. Sometimes it's a parent in a bitter custody battle. And other times they simply disappear and are never found again. I wish I could say they found a magic doorway to a land of wonder and adventure, but we all know how those cases usually end. If you know so much about me, Sylvius said, then you know when I took the Ballard girl, I didn't do anything to her. I mean, sure, she was scared at first, but she actually had fun when she realized we weren't going to hurt her. We took care of her, paid her more attention than both her parents ever did. We were just trying to pay off our student loans and thought we'd get a ransom from an old boss. We didn't hurt the kid. If your job were mine and mine were yours, Crawford said to Sylvius, you'd be asking the same questions. The geek nodded. Yeah, I suppose I would. Desner made a sniffling sound that got Crawford's attention. I was just about to ask that, Agent Desner. He turned back to Sylvius and said, Do you know where Marty Clemens is? Clemens, Sylvius said while searching the air for an answer. That one of the roustabouts? Yes. The pig nasty one? Probably. I saw him around this morning, but we really keep to ourselves. We're kind of the black sheep of the circus. Even the roustabouts leave us alone. Okay, thank you, Mr. Sylvius, Crawford said. We'll be around if we have more questions. I hope to catch your act later. Sincerely. Crawford and Desner questioned the others on their list. Mostly smaller charges, but Crawford knew one could never be too sure. They talked with a couple roustabouts who each served a couple years for burglary. Nothing big, just ransacking houses for money and things they could fence for money to support drug habits. They talked with four clowns, each with a long list of DUIs and public intoxications beneath their belts. Two acrobats who had been taken down with a meth lab, a juggler with an assault charge he swore was self-defense, and two twin dancers who once ran a brothel. But nobody who would take children from the safety of their homes in the middle of the night. Crawford knocked on the door of Simon Heckler's RV. Just a minute, Heckler said from inside. Crawford looked at his watch, and 27 seconds later, Heckler opened the door. He wore his ringmaster's outfit, a slick black top hat with a long red waistcoat and white pants, huge shoes polished to a spit shine that would make a drill instructor proud. A fake thin mustache was held in place above his lip with spirit glue. It looked like an upper-class caterpillar, all groomed and proper and ready for a night on the town. Just getting dressed for the matinee, Heckler said. Please, come in. Crawford and Desner followed. So, did you gentlemen find anything out? We were just asking a few questions this time around. We have two agents looking for Marty Clemens. We'll give them a little more time before continuing our investigation. Heckler was much calmer this time. He wasn't even tapping his foot. Other than running his fingers over the fake mustache, he seemed perfectly at ease with the agent's presence. Can I ask what it is you believe Marty did? There's not an official investigation into Clemens at this point. If Agents Schwanbeck and Heller don't find him soon... Then we'll open things a little wider. Oh, okay. Can I ask you another question? Sure. Am I a suspect in whatever it is you're investigating? Crawford and Desner looked at each other, and then Crawford said, When you begin a case like this, unfortunately you have to treat everyone like a suspect. Right now, Marty Clemens seems to have something he's hiding because he disappeared without telling anybody where he was going. That means he ran, or he knew something somebody didn't want him to know and they did something to him. Desner cleared his throat and Crawford added, or he could have a valid reason for leaving so suddenly. We can't rule anything out, and we can't make snap judgments. Oh, okay. Heckler's foot began tapping. Just barely. 
They spent a few minutes talking with Heckler about circus life. When Heckler offered them two tickets to the matinee show, Crawford accepted. Then Heckler told him he had to see them out because he had to finish getting ready. He told them if they had any more questions, they could come to him. When agents Crawford and Desner were clear from the RV and Heckler had the door closed, Crawford said, Sure was a lot cleaner in there than earlier, huh? The circus was everything Crawford expected. Not the greatest show on earth, but better than a night plunked down in front of a TV watching bad sitcoms and hospital dramas. There were clowns and jugglers and acrobats, aerialists, daredevils, and dancers. Under the lighting of the big top, even the animals looked full of life. There was a magic act and people riding horses while standing. But that wasn't what Crawford really wanted to see. When the circus was over and the sun had slipped behind the western edge of the world, the lights came up on the sideshow. A tall man and a dwarf, both in outfits similar to Heckler's ringmaster getup, only much sleazier, worked the long red stage in front of the smaller white tent behind. The tall man, the sideshow talker, promised that beyond tent flaps was a world of horrors you have to see to believe. Things so hideous, we're not even allowed to talk about them. Behind him on the stage was a fire eater and an old school strongman, ripping phone books in half, shredding coins with his teeth, and occasionally bending metal bars with his bare hands. Crawford paid for two tickets, and when a small crowd was gathered, the dwarf led them inside where they quickly found out the sideshow wasn't quite the display of freaks they were promised. Upon entering, visitors were treated to what amounted to little more than a poor museum display, a crash course in sideshow history. The two-headed baby, the wolf boy, and all the terrible things the talker promised really were inside, but they weren't the real deal. Instead, grainy black-and-white photocopies of photographs of two-headed babies and other oddities were glued to foam core mounting and pinned to a wall. The disappointment was staggering, like a kid finding out x-ray spectacles didn't really work or that sea monkeys didn't grow into real amphibious people wielding tridents. A flap in the tent led them to the next room. The dwarf guide warned the crowd that they'd never look at dinner the same way again after seeing what waited for them beyond. Like the Room of Horrors, The Animal Oddities Room came mostly in the form of poor-quality copies of photos. Five-legged cows, two-headed snakes, and pictures of monkeys that looked human. All were images that could be found in any decent library. The one real animal in the room was an enormous pig. The huge sow lying on a bed of straw and feces was billed as the world's biggest swine, according to a sign tacked to her pen. The sign also claimed she measured nine and a half feet long and weighed more than a cow, but it was clearly a lie. Still, it was most likely the largest pig anyone in the tent had ever seen, and Crawford was convinced at least a quarter of the crowd would tell stories about the time they saw the world's largest pig until the day they died. From one huge sow to another, the guide said as he led the crowd to the next room, where the world's fattest lady sat on a chair made of cinder blocks. Crawford figured it was more for effect than anything, but, much like the pig, she was the largest in her class that most people would ever see in real life. She ate a piece of chocolate cake with her right hand and a pile of raw ground beef with her left. She paid more attention to the cake, taking bites of the beef only now and then. She ate as sloppily as possible, letting chocolate and red meat roll down her huge dress to the dirty ground below. The dwarf scooped up the residue with a small shovel and led the group to the final room. It tastes like chicken! At least that's what he tells himself, the guide said as Dean Silvius, the geek, began his routine. Sylvia started with a styrofoam cup full of nightcrawlers. 
He popped the worms into his mouth and slurped them down like a little kid eating spaghetti for the first time. There is nothing he won't eat, the guide said. He held the shovel of regurgitated chocolate cake and raw meat near Silvius's mouth, and he ate it like dessert. A teenage girl ran from the tent in disgust. Next, Silvius produced a sixteen-penny nail and a hammer and pounded most of it into his nasal cavity. When he was done with the nail, he snorted a long balloon through his nose and pulled it from his mouth. Then he did it the other way. He offered the balloon to a girl who fled the tent, screaming and retching. He finished by lifting cinder blocks with a bungee cord he slid through various piercings, his nose, his ears, and his nipples. People covered their eyes while still peeking through their fingers, half hoping it would end, half hoping he would do something even more vile. The sideshow didn't deliver on all its promises, but Crawford was sure word of mouth would at least ensure a steady stream of teenagers made their way through the long sideshow tent before the Heckle Brothers Circus left town. After the show, Crawford contacted Schwanbeck to see if he found Clemens. So far he hadn't, but somebody fitting his description had been spotted hitchhiking along Interstate 94. He assured Crawford, It's just a matter of time, Pops. Everybody from local police to other special agents were scouring the area, searching for Clemens. Crawford hoped anyone but Schwanbeck and Heller would find him. It would be bad enough if Schwanbeck was right and Crawford's hunch that the person they were looking for was still nearby, but it would be amplified if Schwanbeck was the one bringing Clemens in. Crawford and Desner left the circus to get dinner. Even Desner suggested they join the hunt for Clemens, but Crawford convinced his partner, and his superiors, that it wouldn't hurt anything if they returned to the circus later that evening after the final show. They made their way to the sideshow tent. Crawford had a theory. He assumed the sideshow was viewed with disdain by the real performers of the circus. He guessed that the sideshow performers would be more approachable. He counted on them disliking the main circus performers enough that they'd speak freely about them, and vice versa. They stepped over a rope near the sideshow tent, and when they made their way around back, they heard somebody say, Sorry, this area is for performers only. Can I help you gentlemen find your way? It was the strong man. Crawford flashed his badge. Well, I guess you can go wherever you please then. My name's Special Agent Crawford, and this is Special Agent Desner. We're with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The strong man extended his hand to Crawford, who shook it and instantly regretted the decision. The strong man definitely had the grip of someone who bent steel bars for a living. Nice to meet you. Name's Reggie Ham, the strong man said. He looked like an old-time act. He wore a Tarzan outfit, he shaved his head, and he had a handlebar mustache, a page straight out of the Heckle Brother Circus's fabricated past. Reggie pointed over his shoulder and said, That's my wife, Petunia. The fat lady waved, and the agents waved back. She sat in a folding metal chair outside their RV. The chair's legs buckled beneath her weight, as though stricken by rickets. Agent Crawford was hit with an underlying anxiety. He wondered if the chair's legs would finally give way in his presence and drop the fat lady ass-flat on the ground. When he felt reasonably sure the chair would indeed hold, he said to the strong man, May we ask you a few questions? Sure. Do you know Marty Clemens? Not that I'm aware of. He work here? Yes, he's a laborer. Oh, little guy with dirty hands smells worse than the animals. That sounds like him, Crawford said. Yeah, I've seen him around, but I don't know him. He keeps to himself. The other roustabouts could probably help you more. I'm guessing they'd talk. They don't seem to like him much. They only keep him around because he does the dirty work nobody else wants to do. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> 
Desner cleared his throat, and Crawford saw Dean Silvius making his way to a tent. Mr. Silvius, Crawford said. I loved your act. Silvius was startled, but once he saw who was talking to him, he crossed the grounds and shook Crawford's hand. It didn't hurt like Reggie Ham's handshake. Thank you, Silvius said. So that nail thing, what's the trick to that? Ah, there's no trick at all. There's a lot more room up there than most people realize. You gotta be a little careful, but it's no biggie. Silvius changed gears. So, have you found your kidnapper yet? We don't know if they're kidnappings or not, Crawford said. We have a couple agents tracking a suspect, and we'll wait to see what comes back there before pressing on. You know, I was thinking earlier, Silvius said. Have you checked out Lester Siegel? Who's that? The magician. Really arrogant, really secretive. If he can make an assistant disappear, he might also be able to make kids disappear. Do you think he'd hurt a kid? No idea, Silvius said. What do you think, Mr. Ham? Nobody here lacks him either, he said to Crawford. He used to have a stage show. Nothing big, but to hear him tell the story, you'd think it was the Roaring Twenties and he was headlining an act at the Orpheum. Something happened with him and he lost the gig. Nobody knows what, but now he has to slum it with the circus. I don't really know him, though. He usually stays hidden away in his RV or wanders into town away from us. Well, thank you, gentlemen, Crawford said. Ham said, you're welcome, as Silvius nodded. Crawford looked the fat lady's way and waved, and then he and Desner turned and walked away. Crawford still expecting to hear the chair give out and hear the fat lady crash to earth. The next morning, agents Crawford and Desner returned to the Heckle Brothers Circus. Schwanbeck and Heller were still out looking for Clemens and swore they'd have him by day's end. Schwanbeck told Crawford he was wasting his time playing with circus freaks, but Crawford still went to Simon Heckler's RV, ready for another day looking around and chasing hunches. Heckler invited them in and offered them breakfast. No, thank you. We already ate, Crawford said. Heckler poured himself a glass of orange juice and sat down. So what can I help you with today? We'd like to speak with Lester Siegel, Crawford said. Absolutely. He usually sleeps in, but I could take you to his RV later. Thank you, Mr. Heckler. We were talking with Reggie Ham and Dean Silvius last night, and they were talking about him. Ham was talking to you? Yes. I'm surprised. He doesn't like cops much. Maybe he's okay with secret agents. We're not secret agents, Mr. Heckler. That's the Secret Service and the CIA. Right, Heckler said and began tapping his foot. This time it bothered Crawford. Is there something wrong, Mr. Heckler? No, why? It's just you're tapping your foot. You do that a lot. It's just a nervous habit. You weren't initially tapping your foot yesterday when you were getting ready for your show. That's because I have confidence in costume. I'm used to it. It's the one place in the world I feel at ease. I've always tapped my feet. He dabbed perspiration from his forehead with his hand and wiped it on his pants. Are you sure there's nothing wrong, Crawford said. Heckler swallowed and said, yes, everything's fine. Nothing you're holding back? Heckler looked around his RV like he was plotting an exit strategy. Nope, nothing. You're acting strange all of a sudden. When we see that in our line of work, it usually concerns us. What do you mean? Well, one moment you're tapping your foot, and the next you're calm. One moment your RV is cluttered, and the next time we return, it's spotless. Now you're nervous. You're sweating, Mr. Heckler. And that makes me wonder why. Heckler put his head in his hands and said, Okay, okay. He began whimpering. I'm sorry. I'm I'm so sorry. I did it. I'm sorry. He looked up, eyes filled with hope. But by confessing before you found out, you'll go easy on me, right? Crawford and Desner looked at each other, both confused. Just what is it you're confessing to, Mr. Heckler? 
the books. Crawford stared. He was just as lost as Desner. I doctored the books, Heckler said. I, I've been doing it for years. I don't make much doing this show, and sometimes just to get by, I've not recorded all receipts. Sometimes I change records to ease the tax load. He looked at the agents with pity. I'm so sorry. Crawford sighed. We're not with the IRS, Mr. Heckler. I know that. But the FBI has a tax arm, right? Yes, we do. But we're not it. We're investigating the disappearance of children over a period of six years. Heckler stared at his big feet. They were still. A tear fell on one, splashing in the middle. I thought you were asking people about me. No, but you're right. Cooperating with us will weigh in your favor. We will have to contact the IRS to come investigate your records, of course. But that's between you and them. We'd still appreciate it if you cooperated with us, though. Sure. I'll introduce you to Lester right now. Actually, Crawford said, there's something else I'd like you to do for us. Crawford and Desner watched Heckler get Reggie Ham and walk off back toward Heckler's RV. When the two were out of sight, the agents knocked on Ham's door. Who is it? the fat lady said. Special Agents Crawford and Desner with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. May we come in? There was a pause and then she said, My husband's not here. He's off discussing something with Mr. Heckler. We'd like to speak with you, ma'am. May we come in? Another pause, and then she finally said, Sure. They found the fat lady taking up a large love seat in the living space in the RV. She was eating a ham sandwich and drinking from a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew. We'd like to ask a few questions about your husband. Her throat swelled a moment, as though she were swallowing an egg. Sure, she said. Has he done something wrong? We don't know. We're hoping you could help answer that question. Crawford took another step toward her and said, I heard your husband doesn't like cops. Is that true? He sure seemed friendly with us last night. The color drained from her face. Crawford wouldn't have been surprised to find it on the front of her shirt along with barbecue sauce and tiny pieces of meat from the sandwich. Crawford knew her look. It was the look of someone who knew something they didn't want anyone else to know. Desner spoke up, startling both the fat lady and Crawford. May I use your restroom, please? Again, a worried look. Sure, she said. Of course. Desner went to the bathroom, and when he opened the door, the RV filled with a smell of bleach. Desner closed the door, and the fat lady looked relieved when she heard him pissing and not going through their things. Crawford noticed the spotless kitchen. He assumed the bathroom was spotless, too, from the smell of bleach. The rest of the RV, however, was cluttered. He noticed a birthday card on the kitchen counter right next to some wilting roses. About a week old, he guessed. It's Petunia, right? he said to the fat lady. Your name, like the flowers. Yes, she said. Do you and your husband have any children, Petunia? No, we don't. Crawford nodded his head like he suddenly understood. It must be tough with all the traveling. No, it's not that. I can't have children. We've tried. She began crying. I've always wanted babies. Reggie wanted to give them to me, too. I want children so bad I can taste it, but the doctors say I'm barren. Crawford wasn't ready for the flood of tears that followed. He regretted asking the question. I'm so sorry. The door opened, startling them both. Reggie Ham entered the RV. I'm back, babe. I have no idea what Heckler wanted. He was babbling. He stopped when he saw Agent Crawford in his home. He quickly put on his The Law Is My Friend face. Agent Crawford, how can I help you? 
Do you have more questions about Lester Siegel or Clemens? I may have some more questions, yes. He looked back at the counter in the kitchen, at the birthday card, and pointed. Was it somebody's birthday recently? Petunia looked at her husband and then said, Yes, mine. Really? When was it? Last week, she said. What day? On the 13th. The tears returned, this time much heavier than when she was telling Crawford about her inability to conceive. That's interesting, Crawford said. Everything happened in a flash, but it all seemed like slow motion time to Special Agent Robert Crawford. Petunia kept crying. She said, I'm so sorry. At the same moment, Reggie made his move. He didn't run for the door. He charged Crawford instead. He was on him before the agent could pull his sidearm. The grip in Reggie Ham's handshake was nothing when compared to the grip he had on Crawford's throat. Everything was going black when Crawford felt Ham let go. Hands up where I can see him, he heard Desner say. Desner had his Glock 22 drawn on Reggie. The strongman reached for Crawford's gun, and the walls of the RV were speckled red in a loud bang. Maybe Schwanbeck and the others were right, Crawford thought. Maybe it was time to pack it in. His reflexes had failed him. He'd be dead without Desner's backup. Reality settled in, and he frantically wiped at his face. He lay on the floor in shock, feeling another man's blood flowing across his cheeks. He looked up at the fat lady in the love seat. That's not a ham sandwich, is it? Okay, so let me get this straight, Agent Schwambeck said with a mouth full of pulled pork. It was three days later and the four agents were meeting at the pig stop, a tiny restaurant shaped like a pig. Schwanbeck and Heller arrived first and had already started eating their sandwiches before Crawford and Desner arrived. Okay, so Chuckles here shot the strongman in the head and the fat lady had a heart attack? That's what he's saying, Desner said. Crawford didn't want to talk about it. He shook his glass of water, letting the ice cubes tink along the sides. He wasn't in the mood for Schwanbeck. Not today. But what about the pajama bottoms, Heller said in a rare vocal moment. They were planted by ham, Desner said. We found other things belonging to the kid in the RV. Speaking of the kid, Schwanbeck said. The sandwich you said she was eating. Every year since 1999, her husband went out and got a kid for her to eat? That's a fucked up gift. Schwanbeck took another bite of his sandwich, making a big show of it. Crawford grabbed his mouth and squeezed. Half the mouthful fell onto his plate, and he forced the other half down in a swallow to avoid choking. I'm not in the mood, Joseph, Crawford said. He let go, and Schwanbeck wiped his face with a napkin, took a sip of water, and left his sandwich alone. He turned his plate so Crawford didn't have to look at the bite marks. I'm sorry. I wasn't making fun of the kid, you know that. Yeah, I know, Crawford said. I'm sorry. Really. It's just the wild things people do. Just when you think you've seen it all, somebody comes along and shows you how little we truly know about how sick people can be. He took more water, this time a gulp, and then said, So what happened with the heckle guy? Heard you guys solved two cases while we were chasing down a guy with nothing but a parole violation he thought he could outrun. Schwanbeck had opened the door for Crawford to boast about the case. It was the first time he'd ever given Crawford and Desner credit. Crawford eased up. He smiled as he thought about Heckler's confession. Yeah, we were talking to him. Not even about much at all, and he started getting all squirrely on us. He thought we were after him. Turns out he was doctoring his books. Nothing big even, but you know how guilt can tear at a person. That's beautiful, Schwanbeck said. He eyed the sandwich again and looked at Crawford, who nodded. 
Schwanbeck took a dainty bite and chewed with his mouth closed, but Crawford still thought about the last remains of Cyrus Clem in the refrigerator, wedged between a jug of milk and a box of Arm and Hammer. The waitress came to the table and Desner ordered ribs. When she asked Crawford what he wanted, he said, You know, I think I'll just have the salad today. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. Theme music, as always, by Ergo Fizmiz. Story music this time by Howard Harper Barnes, Christian Anderson, Peter Sandberg, and Gavin Luke, all licensed through Epidemic Sound. Sound effects are always made in-house or found at freesound.org. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and music. Coming soon, or soonish, which I suppose is a bit longer than soon, it's the very strange father-son story I've mentioned. Between a bout of unemployment, easing back into a novel, and self-isolation, focus on finishing that story has suffered a bit. And regarding self-isolation, I hope you and yours are as well as can be right now. Maybe it wasn't the best time to release a story about missing children, or maybe I provided a little bit of escape. But as I write this, I really wish this were the weird father-son story, because it's funny and touching. Anyway, until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp.